Section 1 of the National Geographic Magazine, Volume 9, February 1898. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Larry Wilson. Gardner Green Hubbard. An address delivered at the memorial services held at the Church of the Covenant, Washington, D.C., December 13, 1897, by Rev. Tunis S. Hamlin, D.D. Our capital city has lost its first citizen in civil life. The country and the world have lost a benefactor. Science, art, invention, discovery, the legal profession, philanthropy, broad-minded and generous culture, intelligent and refined hospitality are distinctly impoverished. Friendship of a pure, unselfish, persistent sort will miss a noble exemplar. Family life of the ideal type will have one less illustration among us. We are all personally bereaved today, and I feel it our right to mingle our sorrows even with the more intimate grief of kindred as we gather here to pay our last tribute of respect, reverence, and love. Gardner Green Hubbard was descended from an educated and gentle ancestry on both sides for many generations. Physically, mentally, and morally, his heredity, and so his personal nature, were of the best. He was born in Boston, August 25, 1822. His father, Samuel, an alumnus of Yale and a doctor of laws from Yale, Dartmouth, and Harvard, was an accomplished lawyer, and during his last years a member of the Supreme Court of Massachusetts. His grandfather, William, was a successful merchant. Back of this, the family is English, its first representative in America, being William Hubbard, a graduate of Harvard in 1642, pastor for 38 years at Ipswich, Massachusetts, and historian of New England. His mother, Mary, was the daughter of Gardner Green of Boston, one of the most prosperous and eminent men of his day. After careful preparation at the then, as now, excellent Boston schools, Mr. Hubbard took a full course at Dartmouth in the class of 1841, and at once entered upon the study of law at Cambridge. Admitted to the bar in 1843, he entered the office of Benjamin R. Curtis, and remained with that eminent firm until its head came to this city to take his seat upon the Supreme Bench of the United States. For twenty years he practiced his profession in Boston, and for five years longer in this capital, to which he was drawn by considerations of health and by our salubrious climate. It is so long since Mr. Hubbard laid down his profession, almost twenty years, and he has since become so eminent in so many other activities that his real greatness as a lawyer has become obscured, but he was thorough in this as in all else. He was associated with Webster and other great men in many notable cases. Both Dartmouth College and Columbian University gave him a doctorate of laws. Had he devoted himself till life's close to his first pursuit, he would have made and held a place among the leaders of the American bar. Mr. Hubbard very early evinced the far-sighted enterprise and the broad and active public spirit that characterized him to the last. Fixing his residence in Cambridge, he threw himself at once into all its municipal interests. He became president of the company that built the first street railroad in this country outside of New York City, that namely between Cambridge and Boston. He was for some ten years a member of the State Board of Education of Massachusetts. In 1860, he was led by the result of serious sickness, 
in one of his own children to carefully investigate the possibility of teaching deaf mutes to speak. The idea had originated in Germany and been successfully applied in a few cases, but it remained for Mr. Hubbard to make this, like several other things lying dormant or inefficient, widely or universally available. Convinced by personal study of what might be accomplished, and with an object lesson before him in his own household, he gathered a half-dozen pupils, employed a teacher, and opened a school in Chelmsford near Boston, to which he was a most generous contributor for several years. Meanwhile, he applied to the legislature for a charter, only to be met with doubts and discouraged as a visionary. But he persevered, took the pupils of his school, and even his own little daughter before a legislative committee to demonstrate his success and finally secured the founding of the Clark School at Northampton, the best of its kind in the world, which he organized, of whose board of trustees he was the first president and a member till his death, and which, in telegraphing its condolence, says it, quote, recognizes an immeasurable loss, unquote. In this great achievement, Mr. Hubbard opened the benefits and delights of language and of association on practically equal terms with their fellow men to a multitude that had hitherto been doomed to live apart and to miss many of life's sweetest joys. His keen interest in this work never lied, and he has for many years been first vice-president of the American Association to promote the teaching of speech to the deaf. This alone would entitle him to be called a benefactor of mankind. These services, together with his high standing as a lawyer, and his very efficient labors as a commissioner from Massachusetts, to the Centennial Exposition at Philadelphia, had given Mr. Hubbard a national reputation. And in 1876, President Grant appointed him chairman of a special commission to investigate the entire question of railway mail transportation. His work here was characteristically thorough, and is to be chiefly credited with the present excellent condition of that important branch of the public service. From that time, distinguished political preferments have been repeatedly offered him, but though the compliment was fully appreciated, the offer was always declined, since he believed independence of action to be best both for himself and for the causes that he loved and aimed to promote. During his residence of nearly a quarter of a century at this capital, he has been the trusted friend and counselor of presidents and statesmen, and has exercised a strong, if indirect, influence upon national and international affairs. He was a wise and staunch friend of arbitration. He believed that the government should use its post offices as telegraph stations. He was vitally interested in the free library of this city. He had long urged what is just now happily coming anew to the front, the establishment here of a true national university upon the lines drawn by Washington. He was an active and efficient trustee of the Columbian University. He cherished the keenest interest in his alma mater, was president of her alumni association in this city, and provided a lectureship at the college which is filled by his close and cherished friend, ex-Senator Dawes. President Tucker says, quote, The college honors the memory which has become a part of its lasting possessions, unquote. He was a regent of the Smithsonian Institution, and eminently fitted to be, for he was committed mind and heart and soul to, quote, the increase and diffusion of knowledge among men, unquote. And so, while not himself a specialist in science, Mr. Hubbard became a promoter of science, and in a remarkable degree 
a friend of scientists. He felt a hearty and honest pride in our city's leading position as a scientific center in this country. Every earnest student of science was sure of his sympathy and encouragement. Nowhere outside of his own household will he be more missed than in the goodly scientific fellowship here, as nowhere has he been more honored and beloved. It was this fondness, probably, that led him to cast such a wealth of thought and labor into the National Geographic Society, the beloved child of his old age. He carried it daily upon his heart. He planned for it constantly. He was never too busy or too weary to consult and act for its welfare. He had willing and efficient helpers, but no one will be more quick than they to say that the President made it what it was, easily the leading organization of its kind in the United States. The estimation in which he was held among the scientific men of the national capital is shown by the fact that he was thrice elected president of the Joint Commission of the Scientific Societies of Washington and held that honorable position from the formal organization of the commission in 1895 until his death. But if not a technical scientist, Mr. Hubbard's intense sympathy with science was supplemented by a wide and far from inaccurate knowledge. He was a close student of the electric or magnetic telegraph, and the late president of the Western Union Company said he had done more than any other man to make the service of that great corporation popularly available. His capacities in such directions were widely recognized, and for many years he was first vice president of the American Association of Inventors and Manufacturers. One of his last labors was filling the semi-scientific position of Commissioner of Awards at the Tennessee Exposition. At the cost of immense care and very wide and protracted correspondence, he formed his jury of 50 experts, and then spent three busy weeks in Nashville in directing and supervising their labors. So highly was his work appreciated that when death came, there lay upon his desk an invitation to do the same thing next year at Omaha. It was this scientific leaning, combined with a fine commercial talent and matured business judgment, that enabled him to render to the telephone that inestimable service by which perhaps he will be most widely known and longest remembered. In no sense its inventor, Mr. Hubbard's unfaltering faith in its possibilities fitted him to take this product of the splendid genius of his son-in-law, Professor Bell, and make it practically available and commercially profitable. When the invention, one of the greatest of the century, was to all intents and purposes complete, it had brought with it an enormous task. Quote, a new art was to be taught to the world, a new industry created, business and social methods revolutionized. Unquote. Mr. Hubbard was a man for the hour. It does speak, cried Sir William Thompson, and Mr. Hubbard added, I will make the world hear it. He did. What men thought a toy, he showed to be a machine of priceless value. He brought it into hourly use in this country, in England, and on the continent of Europe, organizing the international, oriental, and other companies, until in less than a quarter of a century it is conveying thought in every civilized language, and has become more quickly than any other invention of history a necessity of daily life and an untold blessing to mankind." But this man of tireless energy and exhaustless capacity for varied enterprises does not diminish upon a closer view. He recognized his obligations as a citizen of this capital and met them promptly and well. He was governor of the Society of Colonial Wars in the District of Columbia. 
it was represented to him that the city should be made interesting and attractive by preserving some of its most notable historic houses and suitably marking its historic sites instantly his mind assented and his heart was enlisted he gave himself with ardor to the forming of the memorial association of the district of columbia and it is largely through his efforts and influence that the congress has purchased the house in which mr lincoln died and set it apart as a perpetual shrine of patriotic pilgrimage he dispensed a generous and refined hospitality not only or chiefly for his own pleasure though he keenly enjoyed good society but also because he recognized the duty of a suitable welcome to the city's and the nation's guests it is many years since any man of distinction for real merits or valuable services has come to washington without finding himself seated at mr hubbard's table and among guests whom it was a pleasure and an honor to meet he read the best books and while evincing no special talents as a writer he had a fine literary taste and was a judicious and kindly critic he had a passion for art especially for etchings and engravings in knowledge and appreciation of which he was a rare expert and his collection is one of the finest in this country seldom was he seen to better advantage than when showing these treasures to some appreciative friend when his fine face would beam with pleasure and his deep eyes scan afresh every detail of beauty that he knew and loved so well mr hubbard was a man of marked purity of life to whom a stain of any sort seemed utterly foreign no one would have ventured upon coarseness of word or act in his presence he was intensely conscientious he was unselfish willing to accept the efficient result of his labors and let others get the praise he could not be roused to resentment and was often silent when friends thought he should speak and claim his rights he served his fellow men not only in the great ways already noted but with unstinted gifts of thought and sympathy and if need be of money in quite unmentioned ministries and he served them also with what is by no means easiest to give steadfast friendship the numbers very large of young men and men not so young who mr hubbard drew to him and who regarded him as more than friend almost father this single fact is one of the finest tributes possible to the beauty and strength of his character his family life may hardly be mentioned here but it is no intrusion to name what all who entered his beautiful home witnessed a chivalrous conjugal devotion and a tender love for children and grandchildren most delightful to see and that have now become sacred and blessed memories mr hubbard's love for this church was intense and unfailing during the second year of its existence he succeeded mr justice strong as president of its board of trustees and still held the office at his death he served upon its building committee and builded his best thought and devotion into its walls he planned and labored to have it minister to all that is high and pure and elevating for the community and one of his latest wishes was that this fine organ should be used freely to give pleasure to the music lovers of the city of his inmost religious experience we may not speak too freely for he himself was reticent about them he confessed christ in his early manhood in boston under the ministry of the celebrated and godly dr edward n kirk and later removed his church membership to cambridge whence he never brought it to this city he was not clear about some points of metaphysical theology and was too conscientious to do what would seem to commit him to anything that he did not fully believe 
He was reverent, devout, sincere, aiming each day to shape his life on the plan of fidelity to its noblest ideals, to man and to God. It is a unique life that has thus been led among us, and that has now amid universal grief, though as one has said with exultation in what it has been and has accomplished, sunk peacefully and gently to its close. One of the most competent judges writes, quote, When I say that I regarded him as the most useful citizen of Washington, I cannot say more of any man. Unquote. What high and noble phase of the life of our city is not the poor for his going, but also the richer for his having lived among us. What that is purest, truest, sweetest, most broad-minded, most generous-hearted, did he not illustrate and adorn? Man of faith and of action, scholar, lover of art, patriot, cosmopolitan, true friend, tender husband and father, who didst always live with thy face to the sun rising. Good night and flights of angels sing thee to thy rest. End of section one.